0: My guest today is quite an incredibly talented and brave entrepreneur who quit her job at Facebook to start a company in a very unusual and niche field of business, of pet insurance. But she's doing an incredible job and I had such an amazing time talking to her on the podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in into Tiger Ventures Unfiltered. I'm really glad to have a chance to share with you this fascinating conversation. Please give it up for Catherine Denning. Well, hey, Catherine, great to have you here. Amazing to have you on Tiger Adventures Unfiltered. I'm so excited that you <laughs> took your time uh, to be with us on one of our first episodes of this podcast. Uh, amazing to have you here.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Yeah, well, I just have to mention that Catherine actually worked in Tigerland, which is uh, the a group that brings you this podcast. So we're really excited to have her in, have her here in particular. I'm going to begin with maybe a bit of an overview of how did you get into entrepreneurship, Catherine? When did that uh, passion get sparked?
1: Oh, man. So I think... Thinking back to the earliest days, I was born and raised in Hong Kong. I spent 18 years there before coming to the U.S. for college for Princeton. Um, And even from when I was a young kid, I think I always really wanted to create new things and to have an impact on the world. like from when I was really, really young, my dream job was to be a clinical psychologist. Um, <laughs> I, I thought that it was like the coolest job ever to just like hear people's problems and yeah. help them solve them in some small way. And then and then off you go and you get paid to do that. I thought it was amazing. Um, I, was, I was either going to be a clinical psychologist or a marine biologist because I love sharks, <laughs> which wow. is a whole other story. <laughs> um, but but I think it, I, at some level, I just really wanted to help people um and my parents kind of indulged that my sister and i created this hotel limpet where we it was like a spa that we would let our parents go to and we would plan the whole day for them like with movies and food and like and just do this whole experience and they would pay us for it Mm -hmm. (laughs) which was kind of cute Uh, (laughs) and he also um my parents would also let like let us give them like shoulder massages for like a couple dollars per minute, which is pretty solid. And so we kept like trying to yeah. milk that <laughs> for <laughs> as long as we could. Um, and so we would kind of tinker around and and, and do random things. But I think um, at some point along the way, I knew that I wanted to have like more, more of an impact than I think what a clinical psychologist, obviously they do incredible work, but I think I did the math in my head where I was thinking if you could have 30, 40, 50 clients at once and you have a... 50 60 year career like there, there's like a finite number of people that you can impact and I think I was just kind of like yearning for my own way of of making an impact uh if that makes sense
0: yeah so when was your first encounter of entrepreneurship when did that happen
1: so I remember being at Princeton my freshman year, and I really, really, really wanted uh, to take John Danner's class. It's a class on social entrepreneurship. I'm in his class. I'm in his <laughs> seminar this year. <laughs> incredible teacher. But, okay, that's amazing. Yeah, Anyway. Yeah, he, he's just an incredible guy, and I I really, really wanted to take his class, and it had a prerequisite where you couldn't be a freshman. You had to be a sophomore. So I waited patiently until my sophomore year where I could take this class on social entrepreneurship. Uh, cause I've wanted so badly to take this class, wow. and, and I just, I fell in love with everything that he was saying about, about like for-profit market-based solutions to solve some of the world's most pressing problems. Like you come up with these creative ways that people actually buy into, cause that's how incentives work in this world. And then you actually end up getting to solve these biggest problems in education, in sanitation and healthcare. Um, and so I started to get really involved with social entrepreneurship, um, uh, at like the Social Entrepreneurship Club, as well as the E-Club. Um, and I had a strong mentor there. Her name was Meg Partridge. She was two years older and she just spoke so articulately. And I just, I really, really saw her as a role model. And she kind of groomed me into letting me take over the reins and organizing all of Tiger Lunch Yeah. when I became the president the next year, or I, I guess my sophomore year. Uh, and I sophomore year also uh, interned at Tencent, which at the time in 2013, no one had any idea what this company did. They didn't even know Alibaba. Uh, and so I interned working on WeChat in Shenzhen. Wow. And I just, I knew that I wanted to work in tech. I was like spending all my time reading tech crunch articles. And I was like, oh my gosh, I am not doing the right things in college. I'm not taking CS yet. Um, and I and I just knew I wanted to put my, myself in the way of that. And then I also had this big realization my sophomore summer uh, when I was interning that and this is kind of like the whole genesis of like no FOMO as an idea. I was like, why isn't nightlife on our phones? I had no idea back in like 2012 that or 2012, 2013 that it made no sense that you couldn't figure out where's fun on any given night out purely based on an app. So like I'm talking like Hong Kong where I grew up or New York City or San Francisco uh-huh. or even Prince New Jersey. Like where are the bars that have live events, happy hours that are just fun to go to? Uh, and so we, we started this idea. It really, honestly, wasn't even meant to be a full-fledged company, but we just kind of iterated on it. I jammed on it with my sister for a bit. My dad thought it was really interesting, so he wanted to invest and he wanted to help out. Um, and he also had had like business knowledge. He also was Princeton 81, so he just thought it was really fascinating that I was trying to tinker on this idea. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I, I worked on this project on the side and kind of tested things out.
0: Yeah, that's well that's quite incredible. What what year of college was that? I don't wanna put pressure on our student entrepreneurs. Sophomore listening to this. summer. Sophomore summer. Sophomore summer. summer. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. I will also
1: say that I learned so much about what not to do. What I is made it? Tell every us. mistake. What in not the book. to do. So yeah, what not to do. <laughs> what not to do is <laughs> oh my gosh. What not I, there's like the list goes on and on, but I'll say the first one is don't don't take the product as it stands and like hire a salesperson or like go out and like even hire like a marketing team to just like push, push, push that one product. You have to iterate first. Like you have to actually know if this product solves a problem that real people have. And I I would say that like above all else and anything that I've learned through this experience, through working at Facebook, through working on for sure, uh, my, my company that I'm working on right now with also a Princeton co-founder from 2015 with me, is above all else, like build a, build a product that actually solves someone's problem. Um, and I think back then, I just thought, wouldn't it be cool if we had location feature and you could kind of soft invite people if you wanted to have them show up at the bar? Like, wouldn't it be cool if you blah, 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 but none of it was really grounded in actual <laughs> research talking to yeah. actual people. It was just kind of like what I thought would be cool. Um, so I would say above all else, um, iterate on the product uh, and, and get like feedback from customers every step of the way.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So what is this problem now that your company currently is solving? What what do you, what do you focus on in for sure?
1: Oh yeah. So, and this actually happened during my very, very earliest, um, time at Princeton, I had a cat named Simba. Um, and, and I didn't know this at the time, uh, but I kind of connected the the dots down the line, but um, Simba was like my pride and joy. I loved this cat. Even to this day, I still call everyone that I love in my life. So my parents, my sister, my boyfriend, my best friends, I call them all Simba, Yimba, and Yimby because of him. Oh. It's like my term of endearment. Uh, and he, yeah. <laughs> he had like the biggest personality of any cat too. And I just, yeah, I, I, I loved him so much. And he was also the first life that I was responsible for, um, kind of going into adulthood. And I had him for so, so, so many years, like in my formative years of upbringing, middle school, high school, and then first few years until adulthood, like at Princeton. Um, And so it hit me really hard when he got sick. He was diagnosed with cancer, lymphosarcoma, and treatment cost $12,000. I was stunned. Like I had no idea. Maybe I'm an idiot, but I... The thought never crossed my mind that something like that could ever happen to him. And I also just had no idea that cats could get cancer and much less that it would happen to him and, and also had no idea that treatment would ever cost in the ballpark of that amount of money. I wasn't, I didn't have extra time at Princeton to be working a separate job, Like, did not have that kind of money. And I think really what should have been a medical decision to figure out what to do next was very much a financial one um, because it cost that much. And Simba ended up passing away within a week of being diagnosed. Um, And that experience really stuck with me. I went off after Princeton, worked at Facebook, and then was actually volunteering at a a shelter here in the Bay Area called the SFS PCA um, with my now co-founder, Kyrgy. Um, And we just kept talking to pet owner after pet owner that kept saying that they were experiencing this exact same problem. Like they were being forced to place a monetary value on their pets' lives when they get sick or hurt. And pets like us, shh, not till uh, I was about to swear, things happen <laughs> um, and, yep. and you can't really predict it. And things cost so much money. Uh, and so we decided to kind of poke in and, and do a little bit of research. And really, the problem that we're solving is people do need to get insurance um, to help protect their dogs and cats and honestly protect their wallets from bills that can be hun- like not just hundreds, but thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and so, our company for sure. Uh, helps people find the best insurance option to protect their dogs and cats. So it's a pet insurance broker for pet parents.
0: Yeah. So how how big is this problem really? Because I'm just thinking, you know, when I was uh, I was looking at Catherine's company uh, before this interview, and I was like, wow, that's such a niche business. That's a very specific thing which I personally would never think of. So how how big is the the market for that? How many people face these problems? I assume it's a yeah. lot.
1: I, I also, by the way, love that framework. And that's what we did at Facebook. That's what I did even prior to that is like, for any problem, what's the reach and frequency of that problem? How big is it actually? And how big could, could it be? I think pet insurance is such a fascinating space where I had no idea that it existed at the time. I think the company that we're building could not have existed even just a few years ago. Like now is absolutely the right time. So to give you a sense, yeah. there's 185 million dogs and cats in the US, 185 million, and that's like, we, we think it's going to be like 200 million soon, especially even during COVID days with all the shelters clearing out. So many, so many more people are getting pets that wanted to get pets, but now is the best time because they can actually spend quality time with them at home. And then the craziest thing is millennials are now the largest pet-owning demographic. Like, we overtook baby boomers as the largest pet-owning generation and we're practicing parenting on them. So we're having kids later in life. And so our pets are like our starter kids, right? And we're like going through all the freakouts when you have a firstborn, which I I would not know, but my dog Zushi, I'm 100% practicing parenting on him. Um, And then you also have this other trend, which is vet costs have increased 73% in the last 10 years because of tech innovation in the space. Mm -hmm. So you have procedures now that weren't available before, like CT scans, radiation therapy, chemotherapy. There are so, like we've talked to so many dog oncologists at this point, it's wild, like the procedures that exist now for for pets uh, that didn't exist in the past. And so these these procedures cost tens of thousands of dollars, which people do not have laying around. And so it doesn't actually make sense for us to be paying for these things out of pocket anymore. And so pet insurance is actually growing as a as a market. It's still small. It's two percent of pet owners have pet insurance. But that that market is already a one point five billion dollar market. And it's growing at. 25% year over year, and that growth rate is accelerating. And so we honestly think that pet insurance is going to be like a 25 to $30 billion market in the next 10 years. And if you look at markets other than the US, so like Sweden, for example, 90% of dogs are covered by insurance in Sweden, and 25% of pet owners in the UK are covered by insurance. So we actually think just given growth rates, it's going to be quite similar to what we see in the UK. So I'm excited for the next few years. I know that it seems niche now, but I'm pumped to see how this can go in the future.
0: Yeah, that is quite incredible. I'm still astonished that you, uh, well, found this, and you also found this company with such a great name. I just have to acknowledge that the <laughs> pun in the name is just incredible. Uh, but let me let me bring us back a bit because I'm really curious. You worked in Facebook, which is such an established brand, and I think you worked there for quite a while, from what I from what I know. Uh, so what mm-hmm. made you take the leap to actually leave Facebook? Leave this? I assume quite. Uh, well, comfortable position at Facebook, and just start something that's so risky, you know. With especially with the amounts of startups that fail, uh, you know, it's it's quite a risky business. What made you take that leap?
1: Yeah, it's a get, really good question because I think Facebook is such an incredible place to work, and I and I I learned so much while I was there. I think even remembering back to when I was at Princeton, my senior year, um, it was actually luck that I ended up going to, to work at Facebook, um, a guy in my class at Coast 448, um, he had interned at Facebook as an engineer. And then he had heard about this role as a product manager. Um, and he put my name in as like, he just threw in my resume because he thought that I would be a good fit for this role. I had no idea at the time what a product manager was. I had no idea what this rotational product management program was like. Um, and the second that I got an interview, I just, I hauled ass uh i i just i, I have to mark it as explicit. all the time for this <laughs> oh, no, no. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, i i just i was like this is the best job ever you get to you get to solve problems for real people you get mentorship along the way you get to work on incredible incredibly like big problems and i think facebook when i worked there like really lived up to that um i met incredible incredible people that i uh still want to work with today down the line um people that i really learned from i had great mentors and managers, but I think the, the mindset that I had even going into work at Facebook was that it wasn't going to be forever. Um, I always knew that I wanted to start something of my own, and so I actually viewed my time at Facebook as primarily skill building, as well as meeting amazing people that I'd want to work with later and, and keep in my lives later.
0: Yeah, and how was this transition from a, a very corporate, typically corporate environment to a, you know, a startup? How was this change like?
1: Yeah. And I and I would say even to your earlier point on on risk taking, I I thought about the decision a lot uh before I left. And it wasn't like I left at three and a half years like a clockwork and I'd planned yeah. it. I just kind of kept checking in with myself after one year. Have I learned enough to be able to go out and have I maximized the opportunity at Facebook? Answer was definitely no. Had another year, <laughs> like have I learned enough? And then three years. Um, and I think I really left on on a good note. I think I probably could have could have stayed longer, but I think it, it was really the right time for me. Uh, and I would say to anyone who is considering working at a big company and then starting a company later um, or wants to directly go, I would say my take on working at a company like Facebook is you have so many incredible best practices to, to learn from, um, so more about what to do than what I learned in my trying to start a company while I was in, co- uh, in college about what not to do. Um, and so you have these like uh, models and, and frameworks, PMs love their frameworks, to, to look back on, um, that'll help you with anything that you do later, especially starting, um, starting a company. And so in transitioning out, uh, and then actually one more note on risk, I would say for any Princeton founder or, or like Princeton student, you're going to get a great job, your career is going to be long for better or for worse. Um, and so it's just a matter of when you plan on taking that risk now, but knowing that the worst case scenario is actually not that bad. Yeah, <laughs> You'll get employed somewhere and it'll be great. You'll learn a lot. Um, our, our careers are also not linear. So you could be doing one thing for years and then you'll just shape shift and do another thing, taking what you've learned from that first path.
0: Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I'm just curious. So what kind of skills do you think are crucial to learn before you actually, if someone's taking this road of transition, uh, what do you think are some of the most important skills that will mark this idea that, oh, okay, now I can get going with my own thing?
1: Yeah, it's such an actually interesting question. Like if there's any specific skills that you need to pick up in college to be able to transport that into being a founder that's actually literally what i wrote my thesis on was is there a curriculum even in college or is there a set of programs that you can engage in um, to make entrepreneurship teachable and eric schmidt for the longest time i i I believe he did not think that it was possible and then he came in and talked to us i think it was my senior year and he was like hey i actually changed my mind i do think it is it, it is teachable it's learnable Um, there are certain things I would say that make it easier for you, but I think a lot of it is also perspective. Um, so the, the data set that I used for my thesis, if you've heard of Ed Shao, who taught his high-tech entrepreneurship class in 1998, 1997 at Princeton, um, he actually, uh, worked with me to run a survey of the thousands of people that took his class, his high-tech entrepreneurship class fall spring from 1997 until 2014 so this is in 2015 that I wrote my thesis and we talked to founders that have started incredibly successful companies. Um, and a lot of them, the vast majority, including like Tim Ferriss, attributes a lot of their success to taking Ed Shau's class, uh, which is pretty like amazing. I think a lot of it is, is what you make of it and, and your own personal journey as a founder and how you want to contribute to the world. Um, Cause so much of it is perseverance. Like it's really, it's not all fun and fun and games and roses it's it's definitely like high highs and low lows and an emotional roller coaster so i would say if i had to pick like one skill it's it's iterate on yourself as a a person like take feedback and stay humble and just keep learning and stay curious
0: yeah for sure wow that's that's incredible especially i think for people who are debating whether taking anything that's entrepreneurship in theory class is worth it. Because I think that's a it's kind of a question a lot of people are pondering on. Uh so so thank you for that. Uh I actually wanted to ask you about one more thing because well a lot of people are at a point when they think they have an idea or they have an idea with someone, uh, you know, they're trying to be a co-founder of a company with someone. They have a great idea. They they but they they are assuming they will work with someone else. And I assume that's also uh, what you told us uh, is your case. And quite interestingly, also from uh, a Princeton student from your your class, right? Is that correct?
1: Oh yes, Kurji, twenty fifteen, the legend.
0: That's quite incredible. Uh, but so tell me something about well, some maybe some advice on how to look for a co-founder and what are some of the traits that you know, you guys might need to have in common, and also possibly how to deal uh, with situations where your visions uh, just kind of diverge.
1: Yeah, it's, I think this is like the, the ultimate question. Um, and it's something that I spent a lot of time on even before uh, Kyrgyi and I decided to work together on this company. So when I, uh, when I was leaving Facebook, I told people that I was gonna start a company, but I didn't know what or with who. A couple people actually came out of the woodwork and said, hey, if you don't have an idea yet, I have one. Do you want to try working together? So I actually was like co-founder dating, which is a phrase that people use. That's a real life phrase that I don't <laughs> actually like. But it kind of gives you a sense because it is a marriage, uh, how, how you test out, how you test it out. Like, can you actually work together? Um, and so I was working on three different ideas with three different co-founders um, immediately after I quit Facebook. Uh, and I and I learned a lot from those experiences. And I I would say the the first thing that you would absolutely need is this person needs to have a complementary skill set to yours. Um, if you are both great at the same thing, even if it's a product manager and designer, or if you're just like more, uh, yeah, I I would say that that's kind of the canonical example where it seems like you would have some some overlapping interests and some diverging. Um skill sets, even that, in my opinion, hasn't been enough because um, two of the three were both designers of the co-founders that I like kind of was, was working with. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first is really find someone that has a complementary skill set to yours, but has similar values. Um, I think that above all else um, will get you really, really far in terms of one, being able to uh, honestly like resolve conflict, knowing that you have a lot of mutual respect and trust for each other, um, you have, you're coming from the same place uh, values wise and motivation wise. And then two, the complementary skill set will actually be able to help you build together. So, so what I actually ended up doing, I tried to be systematic about it. And I got some, I got some feedback from, from my founder friends who are a year ahead of me or two years ahead, three years, four years. I would say that those people have been the most helpful bar none uh, uh, like above all else. They, they have been through it before and they kind of have their own uh, battle tested learnings. And the the approach that I took to finding Couragey um, was I, I had us go through a series of like two main questions or two main problems wow. or challenges, let's say, where... The first is we sat down and we actually hashed out our values. Like I had prepared on my, I actually still have this note in my phone from, I think it was March of last year, March, 2019, where I listed out a few things that I would consider to be values that I hold true in my personal life. And Um, and he, he, I I don't know if he did the same, but we just sat together for hours and we just talked about our families (laughs) and how we were brought up and the things that we respected about our parents the things that we respect about the people that we admire the most in life and how we've like solve problems and how, how we kind of view our career trajectory and what really matters to us deeply. I think you have to go to that next level, uh, to be able to understand someone, even the first person that I was, uh, considering working with who is now I think they've raised like pre-seed, seed round. They might have like a 10-person team. Like they're, they're killing it. And this is a team that I could have been a co-founder on, but I, I'm so glad that I chose my path. Uh, but he, he's an incredible person. He actually had us do the New York Times article for like how to fall in love. <laughs> um, so we, we went through those questions, no matter how weird that might sound. Um, I think you do have to kind of get uncomfortable with it where you really just open up. Okay, so that's the first one is like values fit, I would say. What's your values fit? Is there fit there? The second one is build fit. Can I actually work with this person? And so he was working at Amazon at the time. Um, and so uh, for him to, to leave Amazon and come work with me full time was a big deal. Um, but we, we had like some hackathons over the weekend and we just talked through... Um, one problem and we had to get to like a successful outcome where we actually jammed on it enough to get to a decent solution Um, and i think that was incredibly helpful because we had even though we met freshman fall at princeton he was a cs major i was woody woo like we didn't take many of the same classes together we had never worked on problem sets together we really needed to make sure that um in working through projects that we could get it done and have it be fun along the way, and so we proved that out. So I'd say those those first two um, steps I think are crucial in in deciding. And then you can even set a deadline. You're like, hey, I know this is kind of weird, and I know you have other stuff going on, but by March fifteenth, we're gonna know whether or not we're co founders. This is this is what we actually did. So.
0: <laughs> wow, that is that is actually incredible, and those are some really, well, relevant and, like, realistic tips. I think that's incredible. Thank you for that. Uh, And I have to say, there is something to the class of 2015. They're all... Starting companies. I don't know what's happening. I will already make a spoiler that our, that our next guest is also class of twenty fifteen. So well, there is something to this particular year at Princeton. Uh, <laughs> that's that's quite incredible. Well, we are slowly running out of time, though. I'm really enjoying this conversation, but I have to ask you. Uh, well, one more thing. We already gave a lot of exceptional tips for to for people who are, um, you know, looking for ideas or uh, already starting a company or have an idea and they're you know they don't really know where to begin. Uh, is there anything else that you would want them to hear? Uh, from your own experiences.
1: Absolutely, uh, so many. I would say maybe if I tried to give three. So the first is, this is weird times, twenty twenty, and with the pandemic and with you having to <laughs> go through school remote and what is happening. But I would say online Princeton online. Who who would have ever thought it's it's brutal? Um, but I think that there are actually like a lot of good things that can come from it. Um, and I would say that throw yourself, number one, like throw yourself at opportunities, even if it is super uncomfortable, like that co-founder <laughs> co-founder framework that I just gave, um, or, or even, you know, getting more involved with a club or an activity on campus. Like, I think even if it doesn't feel good at first, um, make the most of your remaining time at Princeton. Like this is the time that you've got. Um, try to meet people that you wouldn't normally meet. Um, I think that actually might help uh, with your co-founder decision, but also just broadening your horizons. Um, My first half of Princeton and second half were incredibly different. I freshman fall walked onto the Princeton varsity squash team. This was D1, top three in the nation. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. <laughs> I was spending three and a half hours in practice a day and then six days a week and traveling and, and it, it was wild. And then I walked off and then I spent two years like doing a ton with entrepreneurship on campus and uh, taking classes that I wouldn't normally have taken and throwing myself in the way of meeting new people. I think that there's a way to try to do that even in COVID world. Um, so I would say one, like just, just try to maximize what you can. The second I would say is you guys are so much farther along than than some of us even five years out even are today. Like it's it's actually wild <laughs> and I feel like everyone says that and it actually makes me feel old saying that because um, so many people said that to me when I was in college and I was like, all right, okay, let's chill out. Um, but it's so true. Uh, when I was a senior, I met a girl who was a freshman and she was already leading a ton on business today. She was an incredible, like unbelievable designer. Um, I thought she was amazing. And so I kept talking to her and kind of helping her out, answering her questions, um, helped her like... Uh, Referred her for a job at Facebook as a designer and then referred her for the RPM program, which is what I did. And now she's crushing it at Facebook as a product manager on Facebook shops. I feel like something that I would do if you can through a club or an activity is connect with a senior or connect with an alumni a couple years out if you can. The most helpful people, like I mentioned before in my life, like personally, but also obviously as a founder, are founder friends who are a year, two years, three years ahead. Um, see if you could find someone like that. Um, cause I, I would say that those are the people that not only have been the most helpful to me, but also many of them are like angel investors in our company now. I think that there's so many fun ways to, to help each other out and support each other as the years go on. Um, lastly, I would say keep working on problems that you think are really fun, um, and actually help people. I think make sure <laughs> learning from my no former experience, make sure it solves a problem for a real person. Um, and that you can articulate that problem and that person, like it's easier said than done. And then once you've done that, validate through research. Eventually, you'll have data, um, but validate that it solves this problem for people and that they're happy. Um, and, and then keep keep going from there. I've never worked on a product that was ever finished. And I would say that there's no better feeling than actually solving a problem for real people, I would argue. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited for everyone. Um, I'm excited for this podcast series. I'm excited for all of you guys. Um, my dad said to me when I graduated from Princeton that there's no better time to, to be an entrepreneur. He was saying that back in his day, uh, there were no resources like, like the ones that we have today. There were no um, programs that exist for founders and kind of accelerator programs and, and like mentorship programs. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited for everyone who's listening to keep crushing, keep learning and live happy, fulfilling lives.
0: Yeah, well, that's, that's incredible. Well, you, Catherine, are an incredible person and you have an incredible story behind you, I have to say. Uh, and what about the, your future plans? Do you already know? Uh, well, I assume for sure is a, uh, is a long-term project. And as, as you just explained to us, it's quite a, has a, quite a great growth landscape. Uh, but I assume you're, you're, you're planning to stay with entrepreneurship for a longer time period.
1: Yeah, I think so. I I am so loving every single day. Uh, <laughs> like I said, there's high highs and low lows, but I think no easy thing uh, or no hard thing was easy one. Um, it's it's so true. It takes patience, it takes time, perseverance, and like honestly grit. Um, and so I'm excited to see where for sure goes where. Excited to be bringing personalization and transparency to the pet health insurance space. Never really thought I'd ever work in pet insurance, but here we are. Um so I'm excited to see where that where that can take us.
0: Yeah, for sure. And just tell our listeners again when where they can find your company.
1: Yeah, go to www.getforsure.com. and for sure is f u r s u r e.
0: Yeah, that's that's for incredible. Sure. Again, we will be watching closely uh, how your company develops uh, here at Tiger Lunch and we wish you the best of luck. And thanks again for uh, taking your time to be with us on Tiger Ventures Unfiltered and sharing all these incredible tips. Thank you so much, Catherine.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: This episode of the podcast was brought to you by Tiger Lunch, the world's biggest student-run pitch competition hosted at Princeton University and a part of Princeton Entrepreneurship Club. To learn more about Tiger
1: Lounge, visit tigerlounge.com.